The Financial Planning South Africa podcast is intended for professional financial advisors. All discussion is limited to publicly available information and should not be interpreted as legal, professional or financial advice. Hi, I'm Louis van der Merwe, Certified Financial Planner. Join me every week where I get to have discussions with global leaders in the financial planning space to help you serve your clients better and run a more efficient financial planning practice. This is Financial Planners South Africa podcast. Portfolio Metrics is thrilled to bring you this podcast in support of our common passion for people and the evolution of wealth management. Our global business links precision investment management to expert financial advice through partnerships and technology. Portfolio Metrics is an authorized financial services provider. Comspace is a revenue management solution developed specifically for independent financial advisors. It is a web-based application that tracks, allocates, and manages advisor revenue. The system seamlessly reads commission statements from financial institutions and can address any permutation of commission splits. Comspace provides mind-blowing, out-the-box revenue business intelligence and analytics, along with super flexible reporting to effectively manage and grow your business. Welcome to another episode of Financial Planners South Africa. It's so great to have a conversation in person and I have the lovely Felicity guest with me in our office and we get to have a conversation today about financial and economic abuse, a term that might be confusing for a lot of people. It might bring up uncertainty and so Felicity, I'd love for you to tackle financial and economic abuse. What does it actually mean? Thank you for having me, Nui. It's really great to be here. It's a pattern of behaviors that instills fear and causes harm, in a nutshell. That is such a nice and condensed way. And so that behavior that you're talking about, would it, would it be someone else's behavior and the impact on, on a victim? Or, you know, what are we, who, are the, who are the role players in this financial and economic abuse? Well, it takes um, a power imbalance between two people normally. And that's quite broad. So it could be elder abuse. It could be even your business partner. But globally, it's focused on intimate partners. So that would be spouses. And most of the research is on heterosexual couples. There's not enough research on um, other cohorts. But so that's that's the majority of the data is on heterosexual relationships. So for the um, purpose of this conversation, in the majority, it affects women. And that is because historically there is a power imbalance between men and women and it still exists. We can't ignore that. So, you know, although we have legislation and there is a focus on gender equality and addressing inequalities of the past, that's quite widely um, described and to be interpreted. But if we look, there's still a huge disparity between um, income uh, and the genders in South Africa, as well as in relationships. 
Felicity, it feels like we're on this cusp in the financial services world where we start talking about gender pay differences and we start talking about, you know, even the emotional side of money, but yet very little has changed if we look at some of the data. And before this conversation, we were talking about how it's women specifically are suffering around maintenance payments. You know, is that a form of economic abuse? You know, someone not paying their maintenance and you know, how prevalent is it in South Africa? I tend to describe it as financial abuse because economic abuse is um, speaks more to the behaviours. Money could be the tool, but it speaks more to the behaviours, preventing somebody from going to work or coercing them from not working, having control over joint bank accounts. You can see the power imbalance there. Um, but post-relationship and with our divorce statistics and also the shift in nuclear families, most people don't get married. You know, their children are born out of one cohabiting um, and also casual relationships. So money becomes the most effective tool because there's no physical contact. Um, and also it's the most powerful tool post-relationship because you can control remotely. So why does it happen? One, I think it's part of our um, socialization of women being nurturers and carers and men being providers and protectors. The hunters and gatherers. <laughs> <laughs> and um, how does that change, you know, mm. post-relationship? One, they're still primarily in you know, control of the money. And then we, if we look at the emotional side, so if relationships don't end amicably, which the majority don't, there's going to be a, a lag of some kind of retribution. So that happens primarily through money. And the research shows us that when that is, hasn't had the right kind of impact that the abuser is hoping for, then they use the children as well. So money and children become the tool post-relationship. And that's... Um, quite a, that's not what our laws intended, because our Children's Act became child-focused, whereas before when parents got divorced, it was, go, I want the child now, and you can have the child then. And the expert said, this is, we've got to look at the best interests of the child. The best interests of the child is to have a relationship with both parents, mm -hmm. equally. It doesn't say equal time. And then we speak about you know, um, historically, women are the caregivers. So who is the primary attachment parent? Even in relationship, it is still the mother. Mm. So it's almost like she will become the primary caregiver. And you can see your child without, even if you don't pay child support. Okay. Although it speaks to part of being the responsibility, a child cannot be withheld from the other parent because of the lack of child support, which is correct. It's not the child, the child should not be punished for the parent's poor behavior. So that's child focused and child centered. Now that is missing in the Maintenance Act. Although it says in the best interest of the child is paramount, all of the legislation speaks to the person who is meant to provide. Mm which in the majority is men in this country. And because our constitution is so liberal, again, because of our past, you know, people 
did not have fair trials. So our constitution was developed that not a single person in this country will ever go through what citizens did before our constitution. So the right to legal representation, justice has to be, all avenues have to be exhausted. Mm. So you can see what that allows to happen in the maintenance court. Because of the provisions, it's a perfect playground for somebody who's not wanting to pay child support. And that's not because they don't care about the child, it's to punish the Mm ex-partner. Because for some strange reason, when you're in relationship, you understand how much families cost, you understand what children's cost. When the relationship ends, how is that suddenly not remembered? Because then it's, I can only give you a thousand rand and I'm not paying school fees or you pay half school fees, but the other person is earning twice as much um, money as you are. And the courts allow this. Lawyers draw this up in their divorce agreements, 50-50 co-payments. And that doesn't speak to equality, Mm -hmm. particularly financial equality or economic equality. So you can start seeing how the impact is on the primary carer, who in the majority is women. And the maintenance act, if it's in the best interest of the child, how do they not understanding that this has a direct impact on the child's well-being? That's financially. But the child bears witness. And the older mm. children get, they realize what they hear the conversations. They're aware of a parent going to court. So you have all of this. Can you imagine a couple who's just now spent a criminal trial and maintenance court, and then they arrive on the Friday to pick up their child. The child witnesses the interaction between their parents. So it's very layered, and I think we need to really have more conversations about this to create the awareness, because this is our future generation. Felicity, you're so passionate about this topic, mm-hmm. and I know you've created a support group for for victim survivors and people that are not getting their maintenance or suffer from economic and financial abuse. Where did this stem from? Like, what sparked that uh, that passion? Um, I got divorced the first time in 1990. 1990. I have ch- had have two children from my first marriage. And I did not ask for assent maintenance because I said, I'm not spending the rest of my life in a maintenance court trying to get money from a man who I know will not pay. I'd seen my mother go through this. And then I got married again. And I had another three children. And one of my children is intellectually impaired who needs care for the rest of his life. And 11 years ago, I ended the marriage. (laughs) And here I am. (laughs) I went back into the system but obviously a lot more aware. This time I realized that one, the impacts, but I also became very aware of his behavior because once he blatantly said to me, you put our love child out of the house and you're going to pay for this. And he withheld money. And the reason that I took that action with my son is I had a no drug policy and he transgressed that. So I got punished for it financially. He withheld money. And that was on the, to- on the on the back of a fraudulent divorce. <laughs> sure. So you really you were a victim of financial and economic abuse, and you've worked through this, and you've also helped thousands, if I have it right, um, of women. Like, what is the type of support that that you have offered them? 
Well, going through what I did, I became very aware that of the systemic problems and to the lack of awareness and the lack of understanding. I didn't get much support. So one day after coming back from court again, very disappointed, and that must have been, I don't know, my 20th appearance in court in a very short period of time, I wondered what other women were doing. Because I was fortunate to have a pro bono attorney and advocate, who today is a judge, who felt, one, I think they were intrigued by my case because of the fraudulent divorce, um, but also I have a mentally challenged child. And because of how vulnerable I was financially, I was a stay-at-home mom for 20 years, essentially. And I left that marriage with nothing. So at the age of 50, what position was I really in to still be the primary caregiver and of an intellectually challenged child who's like having 10 kids on his own? He used to come to work with me every day when I was doing interior decorating because I couldn't leave him at home because of his behavior. So you can see the impact that would have on my work. And when I said to him, you're not paying child support, I'm going to send the two youngest to you in Johannesburg and you can look after them so I can start working properly. He said, well, I'll put the intellectually challenged child in a home and I'll put the youngest in boarding school because how am I supposed to work? <laughs> but he never had the same understanding mm-hmm. towards me. So, you know, it's all of these things. So I came back from court one day and I thought, what are other women doing? Because I'm battling with an attorney and an advocate and I need to offer some support to these women because I've learned a lot. And I started a Facebook group in 2014. It took a year to get to just over a thousand members, but now we're growing at almost a thousand a month and I'm on 77,000. And that is indicative of how pervasive it is. And the interesting thing is that they, most of them feel what they've been going through is abusive, but they didn't have a narrative. One of, of the abuse that they experienced post-relationship, the systemic abuse, and how unsupported they are by society, the people they work for, um, their friends, because like, could you just stop talking? You're acting like a victim. Can you not get over yourself? Go and get a second job. Go and find somebody who's got money that can look after you. The conversations are not helpful. Mm, mm. You know, it reinforces stereotyping and shame and guilt because then you just shut down. You don't want to talk about it. But there's this thing, people want to stand on rooftops and shout about the impacts that it has. It's not just financial. The emotional and psychological impact is immense and that is not recognized. Some equated and some research even says the emotional and psychological impacts are as severe as any other domestic violence victim, emotional and financial abuse victims. Affects depression, anxiety, um, headaches, in some cases even post-traumatic stress disorder. Yeah, you can, it's easy to think, oh, this abuse of this level of abuse is not as bad as, but, you know, as physical abuse, but this, that's not helpful thinking. But let's talk about violence. Mm. How do we describe violence? Language can be violent. Financial yeah. abuse and economic abuse is equally as violent. Silent and invisible, but equally as violent. Um, I, I shared a victim's story the other day on social media, and she herself says, The physical scars I experienced in relationship will heal, but the emotional scars I carry will always be there. 
and people don't see them. I went to go and report um, because I have a protection order for economic abuse and it's a miracle that I got it. I managed to get it enforced once, but when I went to the police station, a captain said to me, I can't see where he abused you. And I said, no, my protection order does not include physical abuse. She goes, not, not going to um, open this case. I said, can you see inside my head? Can you see inside my body? Can you see my scars? Can you see how much pain I've been through? She was so dismissive. I had to really escalate it before I could get them to implement it. How do we expect them to understand mm-hmm. it? You know, also mm-hmm. SAPs are so busy attending to gunshot mm-hmm. wounds and all of that kind of stuff that this seems a soft form of abuse. No, it's equally mm-hmm. as violent. Mm-hmm. And the impacts and harmful. So when you ask me what is economic mm-hmm. and financial abuse, if you, we need to really stop becoming a lot aware, aware of what is harm. Mm-hmm. What harm? And listen to victims. I mean, if you have an employee, and you have to, most companies in this country have a victim or a victim survivor of economic or financial abuse. Has anybody asked, how does it affect you? We, we, we tend to find that um, they further victimize because mm. how many times do you have to take off work to go to court? And then yeah. you are ill because court has been postponed for the 12th time. You have creditors phoning you. You have the school threatening you. Yeah, this, these dominoes just fall but over. But you expected to show up work tomorrow and mm-hmm. be productive and happy. It impacts on companies' bottom lines. It absolutely does. Can we talk a little bit about clients suffering from economic and financial abuse, like specifically in the financial services industry? So people listening to this podcast that might have a client sitting across them that maybe have not gone through a divorce or a breakup, but you suspect signs of coercive behavioral control. Like, How does that show up for, for people that haven't gone through a breakup? Like, What are the signs that we can look for as financial planners? I think part of our curriculum should be coercive and controlling behavior because it exists in families. People don't understand coercive and control. It happens like... We see it amongst our parents and then we start doing it. So it happens in the workplace. And yours is work and personal in the financial services sector. So how would you recognize if you go to a client? It's being aware of cursive and controlling behavior, but being very aware of people's responses. So if you have, um, if you're aware of, imbalance of power, for example, and you're sitting with a couple and you can see the one party's physical response or the hesitation in answering questions, whether they're participating. If you understand cursive and control and you understand um, the different tools that are used, you go, you might think, hang on, there's like a bit of power imbalance here and that would immediately go, cursive and controlling baby and you can start looking out for that if one person tries to speak no 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 you you know i've never discussed it with you i make all the decisions that would be an indication Mm -hmm. excluded so what are the provisions so if you can see like um you'd pick up pretty quickly whether there's full disclosure of income and investments and that's that's and then what do you do once you become aware of that what do you do 
gets very common for one party to want to hide assets or, oh, no, 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 my spouse isn't aware of that asset. Um, there's even a saying that you should be pulling in the non-dominant financial spouse to, to answer questions first. Right? So it, it almost feels like we're trained to navigate around this instead of addressing the issue and saying, hey, you know, this could be a form of economic or financial abuse. Sure, because the abuser would be aware of what you're doing mm. and they would then be a, possibly a lot more assertive. And that gives you an idea of what goes on in the relationship, not just financially. I think one, victims just want to be acknowledged mm. because often they don't even realize to what extent they're being abused. And we need to be very mindful that physical abuse generally only happens right at the end okay. because the other forms of abuse don't carry scars, as I said. So it's very difficult to identify or to explain to somebody. And also if there's gaslighting, you know, am I really saying, is it that bad and then that's all control. They, it's very intentional. Abuse is not conducted by people out of control. It's a choice and they're very much in control. When it becomes physical abuse, that's when they start losing control. But also a measure of control. They will hit you initially in places where people can't see it. And then there's the shame and guilt because there is retribution. And if we just look at the the economic imbalance of women in this country, but also globally, if it is happening, what are the options? They can't just get up and leave. If everybody had the financial resources, they would get up and leave. But most, most women can't, most victims can't. So they choose violence over poverty. Because where do they go with each other? In this country, you go to a shelter unless you've got family. And our shelters are only three months, then where do you go? You don't get a job, you don't get upskilled, you don't get the tools. So you go back to the perpetrator. Wow. It's such a powerful comparison that you're saying, you know, you you don't have options if you don't have money that can support you. And so going through some of the international resources, you know, Michelle Hoskins training, they through the course, they help you to create a, a toolkit for people that you think might be suffering from economic or financial abuse to, to help them kind of escape the, the abuser and that current relationship. How would you approach something like that? So let's say you're in a meeting, you suspect that someone could be a, could be a victim of, you know, this abuse. Maybe their, their spouse is controlling all the spending and they don't have access to money. You would share this potential toolkit, maybe during the meeting, Probably not during the meeting. Probably after the meeting. I mean, what are the what are the practicalities? Um, well, I think that um, yeah, and Michelle's course alludes to that you have to be very mindful mm. that you don't put the victim at more risk. Mm. And that, so I think, if you're not that experienced, you would avoid even going there because out of okay. fear that you're going to put your client at more risk. Yeah. Um, I think that one is being like aware and. It would have to be incident dependent. You know, if okay. there was an incident, then you you could share about the benefits of um, healthy relationships where, you know, people talk about their money issues, um, but not to push it too far. Um, I know that in Michelle's course and in some countries, there 
who countries that are very well resourced, they can discreetly um, provide them with service providers or mm. um, organisations that can assist them. Unfortunately, we don't really have all of those resources in this country. So I have um, a few people who work in the sector, like health, um, mental health practitioners, as well as business people who refer their clients to me so that I can have a discussion because they feel a lot more, obviously I can be a lot more open about it. So, um, yeah, it would be, you know, here are some resources, here's people that you can go and talk to, you you know, discreetly, whether it's yeah. afterwards. Um, once that discussion actually happens and you establish that there is some kind of abuse happening, then we also have to be incredibly mindful because the most dangerous period for somebody leaving an abusive relationship is when they leave and for the first six months. The research also shows us and um, that femicide mm. normally happens when they leave or within the first six months. And I think ours is probably in the top four of the worst femicide figures wow. in the world. So that's when women are at risk, okay. not just physically but financially because... My anecdotal um, evidence shows that money is cut off immediately mm. when you leave the relationship. So providing for that, one, having a strategy is critical. Yeah. You know, and the simple things like start collecting important documents, start collecting things, um, food items, clothing, leave it at a trusted family or friend's house, check your car for tracking, your mm devices, part of the curse of controlling behavior, because if they can't have you, nobody else can. But also if you leave, who are you going to tell? Mm -hmm. You know, this fear, because abuse thrives in secrecy. The moment it's exposed, you also, because then there's retaliation, you know. We often hear people go, I would never have believed that he was that abusive. He was always so nice to his colleagues, also intentional. So it's very difficult for the victim to get proper support. <laughs> you're, the, you're the crazy one, you know. And so having a strategy, an exit mm. strategy, and it is, you know, having some provisions, putting some money away. So it's not, again, you can see it's not a short term. Yeah, this exit strategy can span Six many months, months, two years, whatever, yeah. how long it takes for you to exit. Mm. Um, in, a, in a safe manner. In a safe manner. And then it's, you know, recovery. How do you get protected? And then the recovery from that. And our words are, are important because victims need protection, whether it's from physical or economic or financial abuse. Um, and then we need to assist them to recover. So what does that look like? We in this country, it's such for me, it's pretty exciting because we've got so much work to do um, in terms of product, in terms of services, but in terms of being better humans, you know, being more aware. How, what does protection look like? And that starts, you know, with our friends, our employers, our service providers. The banks have a wonderful opportunity in this country to get involved in protection and also in recovery. Because instead of um, being disadvantaged and discriminated further, by being blacklisted um, by financial organizations. It's, can we assist you to recover? But they need to understand economic and financial abuse before they even get to that point. So the consequences are pretty dire. 
but exciting because whatever improvement we make in all sectors will be better for our people. And if we just look at all of this, if we start working cohesively and look at protecting and recovery, we will change the trajectory of gender-based violence in this country, which is a pandemic. Let's talk about the, the practical things employers can do to actually support victims in that recovery journey. What does good support look like? Good support would look like understanding what it is. So I suppose it would start with your immediate manager who would then, you know, include HR. Establishing, because economic and financial abuse do not happen in isolation. If there's physical abuse is not quite happening, all the other forms of abuse are at play to some degree or the other. Um, it's having a safe space for the victim are you experiencing some kind of abuse? How These are the tools available. This is what we can do in terms of psychosocial, but also in terms of, you know, being a little bit more compassionate about trying to move out and reestablish yourself. If you've moved out, going to maintenance court, because there's an assumption maintenance courts work. They don't. They are dysfunctional. Um, that's why people give up because they can't cope. Once you um, have escaped an abusive relationship, to have hope in a justice system that fails mm. you is like the final straw. And that's people give up because they just can't deal with the systemic abuse from people I mean to protect you who are now consciously and unconsciously abusing. Oh, we'll just postpone. I mean, when I engaged with the DOJ, I say, imagine this file that you have is a child's face, a hungry child who's possibly going to end up on the streets with their mother. And if you're going to postpone this case, this is what you are You're putting this child at risk. And that changes it because it's not just, you know, vanilla folders. Mm. You're actually humanizing this. And that's what we need to do, particularly in our justice system. And I think that if um, corporates can understand that our courts are dysfunctional, because there's an assumption that they work, they don't work. They are harming the most vulnerable and marginalized of our society. And these are employees who are expected to be happy if they engage with customers or even with their colleagues. And this doesn't look good on them. It doesn't look good on their promotion or if they um, are on probation. It has so many compounded impacts. So that's part of protection, understanding how can we assist you. Even referring them to my Facebook group, for example, is a form of support because it's not just emotional support. Because most of the people on my group understand what, you go, what you're going through. Um, I can almost predict. Like when I consult with clients, I can go, this this is where you are. This is what has happened. You've and seen this, this is movie what is, <laughs> before. This, this is what is going yeah. to happen. So because it's almost textbook, you know, it's so predictable. So I courts do not resolve. Even if you have a divorce order, how do you enforce that divorce order? Through the maintenance courts or through the children's courts. Doesn't happen. Because you then enter this. If you go to high court, that's a different story. But it's going to cost you fifty or 60,000 rand. And most victims don't have that kind of money. Yeah, if your resources have been cut off, you know, that isn't necessarily an option for you. Correct. So, you know, it's, it's education from, from every single, from justice. Uh, corporates have a... A huge opportunity to actually understand this, um, not just for their clients, but for their own employees as well, because I can guarantee you that they're employing 
um, females, that there's a large percentage of their female staff that have experienced multiple forms of, of domestic violence. And if they've escaped that, that they are experiencing some form of economic and financial. If we look at the figures um, that we just that I showed you earlier, it's safe to assume that about 65% of women are not getting any child support. That doesn't mean they, they've given up. That could mean that they're still attempting to get money. And these can run cases can run for years. Arrears, there are some women, if you look at some of the high court rulings, two million rand in arrears. That's a lot of money. What has the primary parent absorbed to get that far? And where's that money? So you know in your industry you can attach pensions. There's legislation we've just been through workshops with the Law Reform Commission to look at some trusts, ego trusts, and to see how we can the law can be more effective in going for lump sums. And that's indicative of how long arrears run for. I mean, two million rand, that's years, ten years, twelve years of non-payment. Yeah, someone had to pay for that, right? And it's the primary caregiver. Who's already economically disadvantaged, mm. who's earning less. <laughs> so it, is, it has a huge effect. And I think if we, long term, we're going to find more mature women ending up destitute, dependent on the state because they've spent all their income raising children and providing for their children and possibly trying to improve and putting them through tertiary education and they're going to end up without shelter, without housing, turning to government, who then increases taxes. <laughs> so it's a societal problem. It's, we've got to be aware of this. Felicity, so on the one hand, we're saying employers and, and family members and you know people in general can support the victims better. But I'm also curious, how do we prevent this from happening in the first place? Like, wh what do we need to explore to start having better conversations in that aspect? I think we need to look at the way we socialized. You know, it's one thing to say blame men, but men are socialized just as we are socialized. We are socialized to accept men being the, you know, the providers. But because of the way that society um, and the world has changed and the need for women to have to go into the workplace, a lot of women have become providers, as you can hear. So what does that do to the male's identity of being the provider and the protector? One, if the family, if he starts feeling threatened, whether he is a very controlling person, he feels that, you know, I am the head of the household, I am the dominant person in this relationship, um, and then post-relationship that I will show you, I will not provide. But how do men identify themselves? Surely they identify beyond providers and protectors. And we know that men emotionally, that's seen as being feminine. When men are soft and open and vulnerable, oh, stop you being like a girl now. And that's part of our socialization. Men are capable of being nurturers. So we need to be brave enough to interrogate the way that we are socialized, our cultures, and say, does it still have meaning in 2022? And men need to have more safe spaces and create those safe spaces to really deconstruct the way they are socialized. So I think a big part of this is just starting to have these open conversations, you know, maybe prompting your clients if you're a financial planner and you're sitting in front of a client and you sense that there could be some of these issues, start exploring it and start saying, how do we, how do we work through this instead of just avoiding it and hoping it would not it would not happen. One of the discussions we had was almost talking about planning towards 
a divorce. You know, like in financial planning, we plan for someone to pass away. We plan for people to retire. We plan for people to become disabled, yet a much smaller percentage <laughs> become disabled and get divorced. I'm curious, like, why are we not planning? And maybe you're probably not the right person to ask this question for. I'm asking this more to the audience and the people listening. Should we not be prompting, hey, what is the risk of your relationship not working out? If it doesn't work out, what is the impact? How do we start protecting people that are vulnerable? I think those conversations start before you make a commitment in a relationship, um, particularly if you're married, because you enter into a legal contract. We need to start there. Because they introduced um, accrual, um, anti-nuptial without accrual. And that has been challenged recently yeah. in the court. We're waiting for the con court to ratify the Pretoria High Court's decision to say this contributes to gender inequality. That's because our laws are so progressive. Clean break divorces, but it doesn't take into account the women who have sacrificed her economic opportunities or been prevented at the end of the relationship to suddenly be economically competitive. So and our very progressive laws are, are being challenged because the lag in inequality. So if we go, you, people who are about to get married, I often say to people, do a risk assessment. Have a look at what a divorce agreement looks like. Have a look at what a maintenance agreement looks like or a co-parenting agreement. Because there's a greater chance you're going to have to have a look at those than not if we look at our divorce rates or cohabiting agreements. And if relationships are healthy, they would have these discussions. It starts there. So if you're about to go into a relationship and you have these conversations and there's a resistance, that's already a red flag because that's going to escalate. So it's very difficult um, to advise people who are can only see the positive and are still in the honeymoon or the romantic phase to be pragmatic. But you know, as you say, do a proper risk assessment so that you are prepared. We still have women today and men to a, a lesser extent who go, I would never have predicted this. But if you just listen, it's predictable. <laughs> it's going to happen. So what is so special about you that is not going to happen to you? So um, prepare for the worst. And then if it doesn't turn out that way, well, you know, you've prevented to a degree because that's how you provide. I say that if a woman, if there's a decision for the woman to stay at home after she's given birth for a period of time, make provisions for that. Acknowledge her worth. And it's not always a monetary value, but if, if it's possible that those provi financial provisions are made and also discuss upskilling for that time that you're off home so that she's never disadvantaged. Because the sad thing is it's always going to disadvantage our children. But in relationship, just be aware of, of the red flags. And when, when something doesn't feel right, believe it's not right and become vigilant. And the sooner you make those decisions or get help, the better. Because the children are the glue that binds you to the abuser. If you have no children, very easy to leave the relationship. But a woman's identity and her future well-being changes when 
she decides to have a child. That's when she becomes economically vulnerable. It's a fact. Women who do not have children are very seldom as economically vulnerable as women who do have children. And I can see that in my own life, you know, having recently had um, a little baby and my wife stopped working, having money conversations a lot more difficult, right? Even though I'm the one that's probably got a little bit more power in this relationship purely because I'm bringing in the income. Mm -hmm. So having that conversation is difficult, yet we should be prompting that with our clients. I love the fact that you said, do a risk assessment, like look at these divorce decrees and start unpacking that, yet we never do that kind of planning with clients or training on, and I, and I think there's a, there's a big element and a gap for you to fill. How do you sustain the work that you're doing? Who's, who's supporting these initiatives and what can we do to rally the troops? Um, up to this point, I have not had funding. Um, I've had a few donations from some of my members. And it's, I think it's been so difficult because everything is in its developmental stage. You know, it's understanding, doing the research, um, trying to get the proper information available for South Africa. When I look at all the internationals, I still have to look at it from a South African point of view because we don't have a social support system and our legislation is different. So it's been quite difficult to just have these conversations. But I, I've, I've now co-founded an NPC so that we can do awareness programs, workshops in corporates, out of corporates. But I have also now developed an economic and financial abuse course, very specific for the South African environment, with quite a big focus on coercive and controlling behavior. Um, and then through the maintenance lens um, to a degree. We have to understand coercive and controlling behavior over and above, you know, for financial, because if you have a daughter, if you have a wife, and if you have a daughter, coercive sex is a big thing in this country. Human trafficking is a big thing in this country. That if you recognize the, the, the behavior, and we teach our children about cursive and saying no and boundaries, then it's not just, you know, it's protecting particularly girl children um, physically because most sexual abuse happens from people that we know, 95% of them, only between, I think it's between 5 and 8% happens from strangers. Most of it happens from people we know stemming from grooming. It's the same behavior. Um, whether it's economic abuse, financial abuse, sex just becomes one of one of the tools or the behaviors. You know, they, this curse of controlling behavior is so important to understand. Your work partners, um, your friends. So, and then you recognize the tools. Once you recognize the pattern, you go, oh. And that's how we can then start, because we're also responsible. We've, it's been so normalized. It starts with us to correct our own course of controlling, manipulating, intimidating behavior, and then having the conversations and making and denormalizing it. It's not right to cause harm on anybody, you know, our friends, our partners, our employees, and even our employers. I mean, some employees do to them, it's recognizing it, because then I think we can develop proper policy in our workspaces, um, and we can send people for therapy. We can't say he has a problem and we're not going to start preventing it. 
if we don't help the person. And we've seen this with alcohol abuse. What are, what are employees required to do? You cannot fire somebody. You have to make an attempt to help them recover. The same with abuse. We need to help them to recover. What does that look like? Behavior modification. Whatever needs to be done. It's what New Zealand did. Is this for the the abuser or the victim? Or the both? abuser. Okay. Primarily the abuser to change his behavior, mm. to recognize that it's wrong, that he's harming himself or the, the abuser is harming themselves and harming the people around them. For them to get help so that this decreases. We can't just keep slapping band-aids on, you know, stop the bleeding. Felicity, it sounds like these these practical solutions, right? Mm. This is not a new problem, yet we just haven't addressed it. And it fits in so nicely in the employee well-being that everyone loves talking about. But they talk about, are you getting to the gym instead of, <laughs> are you a victim of economic and financial abuse? Yeah. And it's the most pervasive form of abuse, as I say, because it's silent, it's invisible, um, just can't see the violence. Mm -hmm. And if we recognize it and admit that it's a form of abuse, then we can start dealing with it. How wonderful would it be to have a world where there's financial planners supporting these victims, there's therapists that can help them work through this, and we can actually start changing this. Because I, I think if once we have that in place and it, it becomes normal, it just you know, it improves the well-being of our children and the future generations. Well, it does. But, you know, again, it's, it's, it's developing a policy and having an understanding to take away the shame and the guilt. Mm -hmm. So if we take both the victim and the perpetrator is take the shame and the guilt. The perpetrator, and most of it is socialized, and because it's just never been checked, it's, it's really got out of hand mm -hmm. and become incredibly harmful. Um, to the point where we see women losing their lives, that we, like the alcoholic, you have a problem, HR, you need to go for. Instead of employees taking the attitude, we don't get involved in people's personal lives. Because if a victim contacts the HR or the supervisor and says, look what he has done to me, not enforcing a garnishy order is as abusive. Mm. And we see this. So eventually you get a garnishy order for maintenance. The employer does not enforce it. That is like looking at somebody who's been beaten black and blue and going, oh, I'm sorry, you've been abused, but it's not our problem. That's personal. We don't bring the personal stuff into the workplace. And again, it's a secrecy. They don't want people to know. And we know it's so prevalent in this country. It's, it's kind of going, assuming that people are abusers which is not always popular, but it's assuming that people are abusers and being aware and going, we have, this is identifying it and getting service providers to deal specifically. And I think it starts with general conversations, having workshops and companies generally about what economic and financial abuse looks like, because a lot of people go, would feel uncomfortable and go, oh my gosh, I recognize my own behavior sure. in that and start automatically. I felt that. <laughs> I thought, wow, that could have been seen as being manipulative or controlling. And then you become aware because, I mean, so much, so many of us are doing our own healing work so that mm. we can develop and become better human beings. So a lot of us are able to take responsibility and go, okay, I need, I'm aware of this now. I need to change this. So the best way to do it is to expose your employees to this mm. in general terms. 
because then it becomes a lot more open and then mm -hmm. you can start dealing with individuals. We recognize or we become aware or you're going to maintenance course. We suggest that you go on a course to understand economic and financial abuse and the harms it causes mm -hmm. without it being punitive, without them feeling shame or guilt. Felicity, thank you so much for the work you're doing. If we have listeners that want to support you or want to reach out to you, what's the best way for them to do that? The best way to get hold of me is um, through Facebook as Felicity Ann Guest on LinkedIn, Felicity Guest, um, or via email, felicity.cmds.com cmdsa at gmail.com if they're interested in partnering with us um, with our NPC it's Institute of Social Justice Social Development and Justice Thank you so much we'll add those links to the show notes and anyone that would love to reach out I would urge them to do so and let's start having these conversations with our friends and our employees and our clients to hopefully start improving the lives of the victims Absolutely. It's so exciting because, I mean, whatever work we do is going to improve. And that's what really, really excites me. So thank you for having me and thank you for this opportunity of creating more awareness. Mm -hmm.